0: So I'm the kind of person that likes to underline and make notes in books. Some people don't like to do that. That's sacrilege for some people to writing in books, especially in the Bible, but I do. I like that I can flip through my Bible and see things that I've underlined in the past. Except that sometimes I will come across a verse that has been underlined and I think to myself, why in the world did I underline that? What was I thinking? Any other book underliners who have this experience? Yes, okay, there's my my readers out there. The reason that this happens, particularly with the Bible, is because our sacred text is new every time we come to it. In traditional Christian language, we say that the text is inspired, which is verified by the fact that it inspires us. Americans say that our Constitution is a living document because we are always reinterpreting it. The Bible is even more so because the Bible is always reinterpreting us. We are never the same when we read it. We bring to it our thoughts and feelings and experiences of this day, and it reads back to us what we need and reshapes how we think. It speaks to each one of us individually. But it also speaks to us communally. Because as much as Protestant Christians value individual study of the scriptures, that's a relatively new phenomenon in human history. Think about it. For most of human history, most people were illiterate. And it wasn't until about 500 years ago that we had the technology to produce typewritten books making exact replicas of the same text multiple times. Which tells us, just by design, that the Bible was designed to be read in community. The Bible was designed to be read and interpreted in community. each week at the end of our worship gathering, I invite you to the sermon discussion call. And even though I will happily share with you the stuff that didn't make it into my sermon, the most insightful comments in that call usually come from somebody besides me. My interpretation is not the right one, or even the most important one in this community. And this may sound radical, but I suggest to you that in some ways, we don't really know what the text means until we hear from each other. Let me give you an example. The story we're going to read this morning comes from Genesis chapter 28. It's about Jacob, one of the three patriarchs or fathers of the ancient Hebrew people. Jacob, son of Isaac, whom you heard about from John Powers last week, Jacob, grandson of Abraham, who was the archetype for the life of faith, the one who followed when God said, go and then I'll show you where you're going. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the ones who laid the foundation of faith for the people who would come after them. In this story, Jacob is on the run because he has tricked his twin brother Esau and stolen Esau's inheritance. So their mother, Rebekah, sends Jacob away to keep him safe and for him to find a wife from among her relatives. This journey of Jacob's is going to take a while, and we pick the story up one night when Jacob is tired of traveling and ready to rest. This is Genesis chapter 28, verses 10 through 22. Jacob went out from Beersheba and traveled towards Haran. He came to the place and stayed the night there because the sun had set. He took a stone from the place and put it under his head and lay down there to sleep. And he dreamt that there before him was a ladder on the ground with its top reaching to heaven, and the angels of Yahweh the Lord were going up And down on it then suddenly Yahweh the Lord was standing there next to him and he said I am Yahweh the Lord the God of your grandfather Abraham and the God of Isaac the land on which you are lying I will give to you and to your descendants your descendants will be as numerous as the grains of dust on the earth you will expand to the west and to the east to the north and to the south by you and your descendants, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Look, I am with you. I will guard you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land, because I won't leave you until I have done what I promised you. Jacob awoke from his dream and said, Truly, Yahweh the Lord is in this place, and I I did not know. Then he became afraid and said, this place is fearsome. This has to be the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Jacob got up early in the morning and took the stone that he would put under his head and set it up as a standing stone and poured olive oil on its top and named the place Bethel, which means house of God. But the town had originally been called Luz. Jacob took this vow. If God will be with me, and will guard me on this road I'm traveling, giving me bread to eat and clothes to wear, so that I may return to my father's house in peace, then Yahweh the Lord will be my God. And this stone, which I have set up as a standing stone, will be God's house. And of everything you give me, I will faithfully return one-tenth to you. This is the word of God for all people. Thanks be to God. This week, I read most of a book called God Was in This Place and I, I Did Not Know. Which, as you just heard, is what Jacob says when he awakens from his dream. This book contains seven entirely different interpretations of what that one verse might mean. From seven different authors who lived hundreds of years apart Is this verse about awareness, or egotism, or the problem of evil, or self-reflection, or history? The answer is yes. When the sermon discussion group meets tonight, what Mike Newcomb hears in this verse may be different than what Mary hears, than what Sue hears than what Jan hears, than what Russ hears, than what Julie hears, than what Scott hears. And by the time we've discussed it, this verse will mean more to all of us because we've heard from each other. And this is why one of the commitments of membership here at Zion is faithfully attending services of worship. Because even though we don't all speak up during the worship service, we still receive the spiritual benefit of being together. There's an energy and a vitality when we are together that just isn't there when we're alone. Which we know, because we've spent a lot of time alone in these last 18 months. And I gotta tell you that possibly the hardest thing I've ever had to do as a pastor was to bring my full energy to worship when it was just me alone in my living room. You remember those days last summer. I know you remember those days because many of you have told me how you really struggled spiritually when we were all quarantined. Being together matters. Now not everyone is able to be here in person all the time and that's why we continue to stream our services on Facebook. Even there, your interaction matters. It matters that you check in and share your joys and concerns and comment during the sermon because in a way, you are still together. But then we have people who can watch on Facebook but are not able to interact, and that's okay. Hi, Roseanne. We love you. But you know what? Every one of those people who are able to watch but not able to interact, every one of those people that I have talked to would rather be here in person. They would rather be here worshiping together if they could. Friends, in an age when we are overwhelmed with content and everything is available to watch online, whenever it's most convenient for you, the reason I encourage you to faithfully attend services of worship is because it's not just about you. Worship is not just about you. Your presence, your energy, your spirit, your online comments now in the moment, they matter for other people. Praying out loud together matters. Singing Together matters, I don't care what your voice sounds like. You may not enjoy all the songs that we sing here. That's okay. Maybe you're singing that song today because the person next to you needs to hear it. Worshiping together matters. In fact, worship is one of our four core ministries here at Zion. We do outreach, admissions, we do Christian education, we do member care, and we worship. This morning as you arrived, you received a stewardship packet if you arrived from this direction. For those of you worshiping online, you can find the link at the top of the page, the link to the stewardship packet at the top of the page zionucc.org/worship. And if you like to read ahead, then you may have already seen in that stewardship packet that 49% of our total spending is on things that directly support our weekly worship gatherings, 49%. That's a lot. And we don't apologize for that, because this is where it all starts. Christians do something in worship that isn't being done anywhere else in the world. Nobody else is regularly telling God's story as revealed to us in Jesus. Nowhere else are we being encouraged to join in the Jesus revolution of loving our enemies. Nowhere else are we relentlessly reminded that God's grace to each of us and all of us compels us to cherish each other and not try to change each other. Nobody else Is saying that as much of a dumpster fire as we've made of things, God has an unstoppable plan to heal the world, and we are blessedly invited to participate in it. If we're gonna go out and join the Jesus Revolution, this is where it all starts. We come to worship to be inspired, equipped, and empowered to participate in God's plan to heal the world. These Sunday morning gatherings are the core of our community. And that's why Brian and Bertie and the setup team and the broadcast team and the singers and the greeters and the ushers and the offering counters, that is why we all work so hard to make this a meaningful experience. We think hard about what we proclaim, what we pray and what we sing, This is where it all starts. Now, it better not end here. This better not be all we do as Christians and as a church. But this is where it starts. If this is your church, the first commitment you make is to faithfully attend services of worship, to make this community gatherings a priority in your life. Not just because it's good for you, but because your presence is good for everybody else. That is what it means to be in community. That is one of the ways that we are generous. Generosity isn't just about money. I say that to you almost every week. We're not afraid to talk about money. We will talk about money over the next several weeks. But friends, we could have all the money we need, and frankly, it wouldn't matter if we didn't have any people. We can spend all the money we want on worship, but it doesn't matter if nobody shows up. One of the most important ways to be generous in this church is to be generous with your presence. Is this a guilt trip? No. I'm not trying to shame anyone into showing up. That completely defeats the purpose. If you're feeling a little healthy guilt this morning because the Holy Spirit is nudging you to more faithfully attend services of worship, then thanks be to God. Remember, please, that with God, everything starts with an invitation. With God, everything starts with, look at what is possible. Imagine what this place, what Zion could be if we faithfully attended services of worship. Preaching to the choir, because you guys are here. What, whatever truly faithful attendance means for your family. But dream for a moment about the energy and the spirit and the presence that we would feel here if we made this gathering a priority. You know what it would be like, you felt it. Bigger isn't better just because it's bigger. But if this lawn and that sanctuary and our Facebook broadcast were full of people who were looking forward to being together, excited to welcome guests, Hungry for a word from God, longing to bless each other and the world, and inspired, equipped, and empowered to bear joyful witness to their faith throughout the week, that would be incredible. That would be a powerful experience in and of itself, and it would be an unshakable foundation for mobilizing a force for the healing. Of the world. This morning, God is in this place, and we know it and we experience it when we choose to be together in this place too. Amen.